This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. This evening we will be looking at Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 17. We're in the midst of a, st- a series of studies in Jeremiah, looking at this Old Testament prophet, writings that they uh, recorded over a, a ministry lasting 50 years plus. We trust the series won't last 50 years plus, <laughs> but it is a big book. But tonight, we're looking at chapter 11, verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of God, Jeremiah 11, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. Then I answered, So be it, Lord. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts, who planted you, has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. 
Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we gather this evening, closing hours of daylight, that you would give us clear minds to study your word, to learn from you this evening. Father, we pray as we study this passage that you would lead us into a deeper understanding of it, deeper understanding of you, deeper understanding of your covenant, and most of all, a deeper experience of your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to hang around in reformed circles very long before you come across the word covenant. Covenant theology. Covenant college. Covenant seminary. And the ever-popular covenant Presbyterian church. Now, it's unusual in that covenant is a theological term. But unlike many theological terms, it is unusual in that it's also in common use today. Even today, we speak of the covenant of marriage or neighborhood covenants, you know, that restrict or limit what you can and cannot do to your home within such a neighborhood. There's even a covenant trucking company, which I understand was founded by a graduate of Covenant College, at least it's it's within sight of, or Covenant College is within sight of the Covenant truck headquarters there in Chattanooga. So even on the sides of trucks, you see the term covenant rolling by. But of course, regardless of how it's used today, covenant, the term covenant is a rich theological, biblical term that we need to understand. And the word means then, as it means now, a contract, a binding agreement between two parties. Now, the concept of the covenant runs throughout the scriptures. Very early on, you have the covenant of works, where God comes to Adam, and he gives him this garden to tend, to work, and he allows him to eat the fruit of any tree of the garden except for the one, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from that tree he must not eat, or he will die. Now, this is a covenant. This is a contract. Adam is free to eat the fruit of any tree in the garden except this one. He must not transgress. He must not cross the line and eat the fruit of that one tree. So that was the agreement. As long as he was to abide by that uh, the terms of that covenant, he would live. But when he violated the terms and broke the covenant, he would die. Well, you know that he did, in fact, eat of it. And from that point on, uh, God's people have been under the covenant of grace. Um, we'll talk more about that in just a little bit, but uh, basically that God allowed Adam to continue living at that point, although death began its work, relationships began to deteriorate, sin had entered in, and things got very ugly very quickly. So the concept of the covenant, the covenant of works, covenant of grace flows throughout the whole of the Bible. And I would suggest to you that you cannot understand the scriptures rightly unless you understand this whole concept of covenant theology. But of course, with all things biblical, we need to understand the covenant, not just so we could hold our own in a discussion in Sunday school, not just so we might be able to pass a theological exam, but we need to understand God's covenant so that we can live by it, so that we can live under it. Now, as we study this passage in Isaiah, this word occurs, this whole concept of the covenant. And we're going to look at uh, several aspects of it here. First of all, 
we see that the covenant is rooted in God's grace. It is rooted in God's grace. Even the covenant of works has that element of grace to it in that God graciously came and arranged this relationship with Adam. And certainly under the covenant of grace, we see it rooted in God's grace. This morning, as we, um, as we recited the Ten Commandments, we recognize, as, as, as the catechism, that they begin with the statement of God's grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He came to them. He delivered them. He brought them out. And then he gives to them the various commandments. Well, when they read, and when they lived, what we read in Exodus 20, they would have recognized a familiar pattern. Uh, biblical scholarship in the last number of years has unearthed a, a standard treaty form or, or covenant form that consists of a number of elements, including the stronger power who perhaps has conquered a people or agrees to protect a people, declaring who he is, declaring what he has done for them, and therefore declaring the terms of the relationship and what he would receive in return. And you see that pattern. In Exodus 20, he declares who he is. I am the Lord your God. Introductions were being made. Now they've come out of Egypt there at Mount Sinai, and the Lord, in effect, introduces himself. I am the Lord your God. And then he declares what he's done for them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. And then... He gives the terms of the relationship. Now that he has redeemed them, now that they are his people, how are they to live before him? And he gives what we know as the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the commandments that were elaborated uh, in the chapters to follow. Uh, But basically, as the, the Catechism this morning said, the Ten Commandments are a summary of all of that and themselves are summarized in the commands, as Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your being, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's reflected here in this passage. Again, um, God's grace, verse 4, that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you. And not only there, but the promise of his provision, the promise of glory, verse 5, that I'm, I may confirm the oath I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. And so here you have these echoes from from Exodus 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments. God's bringing them into the land that he had promised to to give to them. However, the enjoyment of the land was conditional. The covenant had two sides to it. There were the blessings of God's favor, God's protection, God's provision, the land flowing with milk and honey, this rich land in which to dwell. God's presence in their midst, but there were also the covenant curses. What would happen if they disobeyed? Well, they were under obligation to obey. Verse 7, I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, obey my voice. We've already seen earlier in Jeremiah how the people were offering sacrifices, in effect, in lieu of obedience. Thought they could just buy off God. But the covenant didn't call for sacrifices. First and foremost, it called for obedience. It called for them to walk in the commandments and the ways, the law of the Lord. There was that obligation there. 
Now, turn, if you would, back to Exodus chapter 24. We're familiar with Exodus 20, giving of the Ten Commandments. But Exodus 24 is as significant. In Exodus 24, we have the people's agreement to the terms of the covenant. Look at verse 3. This, this takes place after the, Lord, after the Lord had called Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the elders, to come up and be in his presence. When we read in verse 3, Moses came. This is Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. The word could also be translated sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. The law that God had given, the book of the covenant. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took blood and threw it or sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So at Sinai, you have the Lord coming to his people. He's just delivered from slavery in Egypt. And he introduces himself. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And now here's how you are to live before me. And then in Exodus 24, we have the people saying, all that the Lord has said we will do, we will obey the voice of the Lord. And to ratify that covenant, Moses takes these animals that have been slain, some of the blood he sprinkles against the altar, some of the blood he sprinkles on the people. And that signifies the the bond, this agreement, this contract that they have before the Lord. And so we need to recognize that the covenant is first and foremost rooted in God's grace. That God comes and initiates a relationship to someone or a group of people here who have experienced his grace. And as the one who has redeemed them, he has the right and does in fact define the terms by which that relationship will proceed. And there are blessings for obedience. There are curses, judgment, punishment for disobedience. Now, At this point in Israel's history, or we perhaps should say to be more accurate, Judah's history, because Israel is no more. Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrians well before this time. At this point in Judah's history, what does it look like? Well, you know, especially if you've been here in this series through Jeremiah, how how rebellious, how disobedient people have been. In their own lives, in their worship, worshiping Ashtoreth, worshiping Baal, worshiping other Canaanite fertility deities. Yes, they still worship the Lord. Yes, they still gave a nod to the temple. But the problem is their hearts really weren't in that. That was just tradition. That was just religious activity. And it was intermingled with the worship of all of these 
pagan deities. And so here, once again, we have the Lord taking exception to, expressing his displeasure with the actions of his people. It's rooted in God's grace. And even though we speak of the people breaking the covenant, and that's a legitimate way, in fact, the passage refers to it that way, that does not make null the covenant. The covenant, even with the people's disobedience, is still very, very much in effect. To break the covenant merely means they broke their promise to obey, but it doesn't mean that the terms of the covenant are removed or go away, just as if you stop paying your mortgage. You've broken that contract in that you stopped paying the payments you've agreed to pay, but as you well know, it doesn't make the mortgage go away. And the people's disobedience did not make that covenant, that contract with its blessings and curses, go away. And so we see in verses 8 through 13 that the covenant is not broken in the sense that it doesn't go away. It's not broken by man's sin. This is verses 8 through 13. It's rooted in God's grace, verses 1 through 5. And Jeremiah acknowledges it, so be it, Lord. That's the terms. Uh, And yes, curses are appropriate. Well, it's not broken by man's sin. Look at verse 8. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Now, the covenant includes blessing for obedience, but also judgments or curses for disobedience. And what were some of Israel's disobedience? Well, we see hard-heartedness. Look at verse 8. They didn't listen. They didn't obey. God says they walked in the stubbornness of their evil hearts, persistent in their rebellion, persistent in their sin. They also, as you well know, engaged in idolatry. Look at verse 9. A conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Literally, Probably not. It probably was not an agreed-upon thing, but it was so widespread and so pernicious and so persistent that it might as well have been a conscious conspiracy together to rebel against the Lord. It was that uniform, that widespread. Verse 10, they have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. Now, turn back. How so? Well, you recall that King Josiah instituted some significant reforms in Jerusalem that did good, that that changed a lot of things, removing pagan worship sites, reinstituting the Passover after the book of the law was discovered in the temple, long uh, ignored, unknown, and it's brought out, and Jeremiah, or rather Josiah the king and the people begin to institute reforms to try to bring Judah and Jerusalem back into line with the covenant. And those are good things. And much of the change was apparent, but also much of the change was only outward, and the people's hearts were not changed. And so here it seems that those reforms have faded. Uh, The people are returning to former ways, and certainly their forefathers much farther back, much earlier, had their own rebellion, uh, persistence in sin against the Lord. They've gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. So sin of idolatry, hard-heartedness, and also 
Even when they did worship the Lord, it, it wasn't right. Look at verse 15. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exalt? What's he saying? He's saying these people come into the temple, they come and worship me, but they're adulterers. How can they come into my house? How can they come into my presence with the kinds of things that they've been doing, both literally, but for for God's purposes here, more importantly, spiritually adulterers with their Baal worship, with their worship of Ashtoreth, with their worship of all these other deities. And then they presume to come to the temple of the Lord and profess to worship him. It's like people who even today would live quite happily in their sin all week and then show up in God's house on Sunday for their Sunday duty. God's response is, what are you doing here? Now, Obviously, they're welcome if they come in repentance and come to seek God's grace and forgiveness. But to presume to worship the Lord while loving one's sin is highly offensive. God says, what right has my beloved, my bride, and my house when she has done many vile things? And certainly their sacrifices they offer are not going to buy God off. They're not going to purchase his favor with their cheap offerings made to soothe their own consciences. Judas sinned badly, hard-heartedness, idolatry, wrong worship of the Lord. And her sin was wearisome and sad. Look at verse 16 and 17. The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because the evil... But the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. Again, that familiar agricultural image that the Lord had planted this tree and it was once a beautiful green olive tree, but now it's gone bad. And he's just going to set fire to it. He's just going to burn it because it's really not good for anything else. The Lord is tired of their sin. It's wearisome. It's sad. I like uh, Phil Riken's comment in his commentary. Um, uh, about this. He says, frankly, by this point in Jeremiah's ministry, the covenant breaking of Israel is becoming tiresome. It's tedious to list their sins over and over again. During the course of 50 years of ministry, Jeremiah tired of it as well. But if Israel's sins make for tiresome reading, this gives a clue what it must be like for God when we commit the same sins over and over again. It is exceedingly tiresome. And God was extremely patient. He called to them time and time again. He sent prophet after prophet to them. He pleaded with them. He gave them time. He relented. But his patience did have a limit. And it does have a limit. They had passed a point of no return. Look at verse 14. Therefore, do not pray, Jeremiah, for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf. For I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. Jeremiah, don't waste your breath praying for this people because I've already decided what I am going to do with them. Look at verse 11. Behold, I'm bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. The cities of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings. They cannot save them in the time of their trouble because their gods had multiplied. They were like the streets of the city of Jerusalem, a different god for every 
street. And those gods certainly could not save them, and the Lord himself had determined disaster against them. His patience had run out, and Judah had passed a point of no return. Now, that's bad news. It's bad news for Jerusalem, and it's bad news for us. Because you and I do not have a day, we don't have a minute that goes by that in one way or another, we are not sinning against the Lord. If the greatest commandment, as Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, then wouldn't the greatest sin be to violate that commandment? And yet I would suggest to you that I and you have never kept that command. That there is not a moment that goes by that we don't violate what is, by Jesus' own lips, the greatest commandment. See, you and I violate God's law, his word, day after day after day after day. God is wearied with your sinning, just like he was wearied with the sin of Jerusalem so long ago. So where's the good news? Well, the good news is in this. The grace in the covenant of grace is this, that God provides a substitute for us to bear the covenant curses, the wrath of God that we deserve. I want you to look back at a passage, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy is, is part of that book of the covenant in a sense. It elaborates God's law as the people are preparing after 40 years in the wilderness to go in and take the land, that land flowing with milk and honey, that second generation that their parents were so worried about that they wouldn't go into the land God had promised them. And that generation, after that unbelieving generation had died off, goes in under Joshua's leadership and takes the land that God had given to them. I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. It says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, I want you to turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Book of Galatians. New Testament, First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Remember, the grace and the covenant of grace is this, that God provides a substitute to bear the covenant curses that you and I deserve. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, with the words from Deuteronomy fresh in your mind. Listen to verse 10, Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Who would that be? That's everyone. None, no one has ever kept the laws of God. We've all broken them. 
And we are under that curse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Quotation from the prophet Habakkuk. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, the law is by works. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Quotation from that passage in Deuteronomy that we have just read. What is Paul saying here? It's saying that Christ became a curse for us. Christ, when he died on the cross, lifted up on that tree, became an accursed thing in the sight of his father. He became the one bearing the sins of his people. He's the one who bore the covenant curses in his body in our place for our sake. And so Jesus bore our curse. And he also won for us the blessings of the covenant. Look at Galatians 3 verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who were the sons of Abraham. Now, Paul argues in Romans 4 and here in Galatians that the primary descendants of Abraham and the heirs of the covenant made with Abraham are not those simply of the flesh, physical descent from Abraham, in other words, ethnic or physical Jews, but those who are of the faith of Abraham. Paul makes this case in a number of places. Romans 2, he said a Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but a Jew is somebody who has been changed inwardly by the Spirit of God, not just outwardly. In several places, Paul makes this point that it is those who are of faith, those who trust in Christ, who are the true heirs of the promises made to Abraham, the children, sons of Abraham. So verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, faith in Christ, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then skip down to verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, do you catch the covenant language there? Look at verse 13 again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to believing Jews too, but also to believing Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus bore our curses, which we deserve under God's covenant of works. Jesus has won for us the blessings that God has promised to those who obey his law. And so why is it important to understand the covenant theology of the Bible? Here's why. Your relationship to God and that of every person who has ever lived or is alive today, Christian or non-Christian, the relationship to God is regulated by a covenant. You, along with every person on the earth today, or whoever lived, 
is either under the covenant of works or the covenant of grace. Another way of putting it is that you will either stand before God and give an account to him on the basis of your record, or you will stand before God and give a reckoning to him on the basis of Christ's record for you. It will either be one or the other. You are either in the covenant of works, standing on your own record, or you are in the covenant of grace, standing covered by the record of Jesus. Now, by default, that is by birth, you and I and everybody are under the covenant of works. The one who keeps the law will live by it. The problem is we haven't kept the law. Beginning with Adam, we've all violated God's law. And since we haven't kept God's law, in the covenant of works, you and I are lost. If you are not in Christ, you are under the covenant of works, and you stand before God on the basis of your record. And I can tell you right now, your record is not acceptable to God. His standard is perfection. If by grace, that is, if you are a Christian, you are included in God's covenant of grace, then we need to be clear. The covenant of grace does not mean that God ignores your sin, that he overlooks your sin, that he pretends like it didn't happen, or that it doesn't really matter. The grace in the covenant of grace is that God graciously allows another to keep the covenant for you and allows another to suffer for your failure to keep the covenant of works. As has been said, we're all saved by works, just not our own works, the works of Jesus for us. The covenant of grace does not in any way minimize sin. If you think so, look at the cross. Look at what Jesus suffered there. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is to be under the curse and judgment of God. And that's exactly what Jesus got on the cross. The curse and judgment of God. Death itself. The covenant of grace does not minimize sin. The grace in the covenant of grace is that God allows a substitute to suffer what you deserve that you might get what he has earned. There's nothing new. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the sacrifices. There's grace. God allows a substitute to die, even if it's an animal, simply a foreshadow of the true Lamb of God, Jesus. But God taught us people even early on his grace in allowing a substitute to die. The grace is not that God ignores our sin, but that the curse for your disobedience has been borne by another, Jesus. And the requirement of obedience has been satisfied for you by another, Jesus. Now, how can we be transferred from the covenant of works in which we are by default, by birth, to the covenant of grace? Well, Scripture could not be more clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It doesn't mean merely acknowledging that he existed. To believe in him means to reckon with our helplessness, to understand that we cannot save ourselves, and we throw ourselves and our eternal well-being on Christ alone, trusting in him and what he has done for me in order to save me. Because you see, Jesus is the perfect covenant keeper. Where Israel failed, Jesus kept it. 
where you and I fail, Jesus kept it. He did it for you. He did it for me. He kept the covenant for everyone who calls on his name in faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your covenant. And yet, Lord, we recognize that left to ourselves, there's nothing in your covenant for us but judgment. But the punishment for disobedience, because we have disobeyed you time and again. But Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that though he was tempted, he never, not even once, disobeyed you. That he kept your covenant perfectly for us, where Adam didn't, where Israel certainly didn't. And we certainly have not. Father, Jesus is our refuge. Jesus' blood is our atonement. Jesus' righteousness is our covering. And we take refuge in him by faith. Thank you for Jesus, Lord, the one who has kept the covenant for us. We might be with you and be your people forever. We pray it in his name. Amen.